And a very good evening to you. Welcome to the Catholic View. I'm Sheila Pirsch. Thank you so much for joining me this evening. Coming up in today's edition of Catholic View, we take a look at two features, the first one being our health feature, and then that will be followed by the Catholic Church and the UN with Father Mike Deeb, OP. But for now, though, please do stay tuned as I bring you up to date with some of the stories that made headlines in Africa. Radio Radio Veritas. And in your headlines this Wednesday evening, Pope Francis weekly general audience, African experts hold the drought conference, and Mozambique gears up for 2016 trade fair. Good evening once again, I'm Sheila Pirish. We begin with church news. Continuing his series of Wednesday Addresses on Mercy, Pope Francis devoted his August 17th general audience to the multiplication of the loaves and fishes. Reflecting on the miracle of the multiplication of the loaves and fishes taken from the Gospel of St. Matthew, the Holy Father focused on Jesus' compassion for the people who follow after him. His compassion is not just a vague sentiment, the Pope said. Rather, Jesus loves us so very much and wants to be close to us. Jesus' concern for the crowd is the impetus for the miracle of the loaves and fishes. Jesus, though, does not act on his own, but wishes to involve his disciples in the miracle. He shows them that the few loaves and fishes they have, with the power of faith and of prayer, can be shared by all the people, the Pope said. It is a miracle that he does, but it is a miracle of faith, of prayer, with compassion and love. Pope Francis noted that Jesus' actions in performing the miracle, lifting his eyes to heaven, saying the blessing, breaking the bread, and giving it, are the same actions he performs at the Last Supper, and the same signs performed by every priest when he offers the sacrifice of the Mass. La comunità cristiana nasce e rinasce continuamente da questa comunione eucaristica. The Christian community is born and reborn continually by this Eucharistic communion, the Pope said. Our communion with Christ, he continued, impels us to go out to the men and women of our day to offer them the concrete sign of the mercy of Christ. In this way, all believers are made servants of mercy. Concluding his catechesis, the Holy Father asked us all to pray that the Lord might always make his church capable of this holy service and might help each one of us to be instruments of communion in our own relationships, visible signs of the mercy of God. I'm Christopher Wells. On Wednesday, the Vatican released a motto proprio by Pope Francis, which officially establishes the new dicastery on the laity, family, and life. And Schnabel has this report. For many centuries, the Church, a caring mother, has had care and respect for the laity, the family, and life, manifesting the love of the merciful Savior for humanity. This is according to the motto proprio, which was signed on August 15th. Our thoughts turn to the laity, the family, and life, 
to whom we wish to offer support and help because they are active witnesses to the gospel in our time and an expression of the goodness of the Redeemer. The new Vatican Department will take on the duties of the current Pontifical Council for the Laity and the Pontifical Council for the Family. The Laity, the Family, and Life Dicastery will take effect on September 1st. At that point, the Pontifical Councils for the Laity and the Family will cease. Bishop Kevin Joseph Farrell, who until now has served as the Bishop of Dallas, Texas, has been appointed as the first prefect of the new dicastery. He is the brother of Bishop Brian Farrell, Secretary for the Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity. I'm Ann Schneibel. Moving on to some African news, delegates to the African Drought Conference in the Namibian capital, Vinduk, expect to draw up a detailed framework to help different countries develop national drought management policies. Namibian State Radio says the meeting comes as some countries affected by the current drought have designed programs and policies to manage food scarcity more effectively. The United Nations estimates food insecurity has affected more than 60 million people worldwide, with 32 million of them in Africa, while Namibia needs to feed more 500,000 people at least until next March. The Maputo International Trade Fair in the Mozambican capital is this year expected to host exhibitors from more than 30 countries across the globe. Radio Mozambique says 33 countries have confirmed they will take part in the 2016 edition, taking place between the 29th of August up until the 4th of September. There will be at least 700 foreign companies exhibiting during the fair, which is being held at Rikatla in Maraqueni district, about 30 kilometers north of the capital city. Mozambique ranks number 15 out of 46 countries in the sub-Saharan African region. Authorities in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, DRC, are being urged by the UN to investigate a massacre that occurred in Benin territory in northern Kivu. At least 47 civilians, including two children, were reportedly killed on Saturday by the Allied Democratic Forces ADF members. Joslyn Sambira reports. The UN Secretary General described the killing of civilians in Beni as appalling in a statement released on Tuesday condemning the attack. Ban Ki-moon also called for those responsible for the attack to be brought to justice. It's the most serious violence to affect the area since 2014, said Ravina Shamdasani of the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights. We urged the Congolese authorities to promptly investigate a massacre that occurred in Beni territory in northern Kivu province on Saturday. At least 47 civilians, including two children, were reportedly killed by suspected Allied Defense Forces, ADF. Three were wounded and ten houses were burnt down. The rebel group behind the massacre is of Ugandan origin and operates mainly in eastern DRC. And finally, UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon has expressed his outrage over the acts of violence committed against civilians and peacekeepers in South Sudan. These acts took place between 8 to 11 July by the South Sudanese Army SPLA and opposition forces. An attack also took place in a hotel complex in the capital Juba called The Terrain, in which one person was killed and several civilians were raped and brutally beaten by men in uniform. 
Jocelyn Sambira has more. In a statement released by his spokesperson on Wednesday, the UN chief announced his decision to launch an independent investigation to determine the circumstances surrounding the incidents that took place in July. The probe will also evaluate UNMIS, the UN mission in South Sudan's overall response. Ban Ki-moon said he was alarmed at the preliminary findings of a fact-finding investigation by the mission into the attack on Hotel Terrain. He was also concerned about allegations that UNMIS did not respond appropriately to prevent this and other grave cases of sexual violence committed in Juba. Here's UN resident and humanitarian coordinator for South Sudan, Eugene Owuso. That was a major tragedy. A very heinous act indeed and very deplorable. And I think all of us need to come together to condemn what was unacceptable behavior on the part of individuals. I think I'd like to use this opportunity to call on the authorities to totally investigate this issue. Uh, We can allow impunity to prevail. The government of South Sudan is being urged to investigate these human rights violations and to prosecute those involved in these unspeakable acts of violence. And those were some of the stories that made headlines in Africa and beyond. You are still listening to The Catholic View, and I'm Sheila Pirsch. Thank you once again for being here with me. Coming up next, we bring you our health feature. Every year, 2.7 million babies die within the first month of life, and roughly the same number are still born, according to data provided by the World Health Organization, WHO. As most of these deaths go unrecorded, countries cannot fully understand what action needs to be taken to prevent more infants from dying. The NPEN reports on how WHO is making every baby count. The statistics for neonatal deaths and stillbirths are further compounded by the loss of more than 300,000 women each year during pregnancy and childbirth. A staggering 98% of these deaths occur in lower-middle-income countries and at least half take place in emergency or conflict situations. But even worse, these numbers are just estimates. Ian Askew is Director of Reproductive Health and Research at the World Health Organization, WHO. One of the problems we face in addressing maternal and uh, neonatal and stillbirths is the problem of not really knowing how many are happening. The numbers I've given you are estimates based on the best evidence that we have. The problem is that in many countries, certainly in terms of stillbirths, virtually all stillbirths are never recorded. There's no birth certificate, no death certificate. And for at least half of the newborn deaths, Again, there's often not a birth certificate and usually not a death certificate. WHO says because there are no records, it's hard to know why these babies died. However, research reveals that their deaths could be due to several factors, such as complications during labor or delivery, or an infection in the mother, or a problem with how the fetus is growing. But without documentation, it's hard for countries to know how to prevent more deaths from occurring, thus potentially saving more babies. WHO has launched an international standardized system for classifying stillbirths and neonatal deaths as a means to address this concern. Once again, Ian Askew. 
The second tool which builds upon this classification system is what we're calling uh, Make Every Baby Count. And this is a, a system, a process, which we hope countries will be able to put into place, which enables them to record these deaths and to record them using this classification system so that countries can then establish committees to review the data and to understand better what's happening around these types of deaths. Because once they have this information, then they can act. At the moment, countries are pretty much going by uh, just gut feeling, what, what makes sense to do in this situation. And so we're hoping that these new tools will provide data, both for countries themselves and for global understanding of this problem. To learn why women die during pregnancy and childbirth, WHO has implemented a process known as maternal death surveillance and response. The strategy calls for a group of health experts to conduct real-time mortality audits to understand the cause of death and contributing factors so that corrective action can be taken. 60 health workers in Bentiwi, South Sudan, have been trained in how to address the large numbers of injuries or deaths resulting from conflicts or natural disasters. The training was conducted by Ghanaian peacekeepers with the UN mission in that country. Jacob Ruai spoke to the senior medical officer of the Ghanaian battalion, Dr. Rilwan Suley. He explains why training in handling mass casualties is valuable in a country like South Sudan. It was a simple training but very important one as a training for capacity building in order to be able to handle mass casualties uh, in the event that there's any mishap or there's anything, whether natural disaster or anything that uh, as a result of war or anything that um, we have so much casualties, how to handle them in order to save a lot of lives within a very short period of time. Actually, when you say mass casualty, we mean where you have so much number of casualties, injuries, death, and everything that overwhelms the uh, capacity of the health system or the hospital to handle it. So why do you think uh, this training is important for hospital staff in Bantu? It's uh, very important for hospital staff in Bantu and for all of us here, the UN workers, WHO and other, where they took part. Because first of all, we are in a high-risk area, considering the situation we are in, the country and everything. There may be a likelihood of flood, anything, uh, the war and everything. So we need to build our capacity to be able to handle anything that comes our way. Uh, we build the capacity in order to be able to handle it. If in case you have a small hospital or the hospital staff is not so much, you don't have a lot of hospital equipment or things to help and you have so much on you, they bring so much casualties on you. It is best to train up yourself so that you will be able to handle those casualties and lessen the number of deaths. How many uh, hospital staff uh, participating uh, during this uh, training? Actually, we plan for about 30, uh, including the hospital staff and some other organizations. We had about 12 hospital staff. The IOM was there. The, this very one, the uh, Medicines and Frontier MSF staff too were there. Uh, some people from the Ministry of Health, they were also there. And then the World Relief um, medical people who are within Bentu and Rob Kona, who are likely to be able to be involved in any mass casualty exercise. Actually, the exercise is such a way that in mass casualty play, uh, situations, because uh, 
the whole idea is that whatever you have as a hospital or a clinic or whatever you may not be able to handle it is very important to bring everybody on board other hospitals other clinics it provided us some sort of two-pronged opportunity just to form a network and also build our capacity in order to be able to handle anything and everything Time now for our feature, the Catholic Church and the UN with Father Mike Dave O.P. Welcome back to our feature, The Church and the UN, with Father Mike Dib O.P. Father Mike Dib is the permanent delegate of the Dominican Order to the United Nations and the Order's General Promoter of Justice and Peace. In this second part of my conversation with Father Mike Dib O.P., we take a look at the ongoing wars. Some call it religious wars, others call it terrorism wars. Pope Francis simply says the world is at war. Pope Francis has said a couple of times recently that the world is at war. And at the same time, Pope Francis also says it's not a religious war. And uh, when we look at your secular news, it seems to be a religious war. We have demolitions of Catholic churches, for example, in some parts of Europe. We have the demolitions or the closure of mosques in France. We have all these ISIS attacks on religion uh, personnel. Recently in France, the priest that was killed, and then it was declared that it was indeed an ISIS attack. What has the UN said about this, especially from the Catholic Church? What is the Catholic Church now saying about this? Is it a religious war? Is it just a, a terrorism war? What are we looking at? Obviously, religion is intertwined in a lot of the stuff, but I would see it more as religion is being used for many political ends because it's so easy to use religion and to mobilize people around religious sentiment. I think if we look at the causes of all the wars that are taking place, especially around in the Arab world and in the Middle East and the Gulf, um, you'll see that there are, one could go into long stories about what the origins are. Um, much of it was uh, around the issue of control of oil and access to it and, and uh, countries like the U.S. and even Europe often promoted divisions there so they could uh, get access on their terms. And um, that's why they were even financing different groups which ended up uh, being these, these uh, so-called ISIS and Al-Qaeda. They were originally financed um, and armed even by the United States, for example, in the original, in the original forms. And um, then they turned against them, and now they're the enemy. And sort of like Saddam was saying, you know, he was built up by the United States, and then eventually he turned against them, and they turned against him, etc. So a lot of it has centered around control of the, the energy resources and the oil, especially in the Middle East. That was one of the major reasons. And, of course, another aspect of, oh, if you're looking at causes, was the whole question of Israel in the Middle East and the whole U.S. policy and a lot of Europe's policy centered around uh, protecting and ensuring that 
Israel could be established and survive in that context. And they've, uh, that, the question of Israel has governed their whole foreign policy, not only in the region, but even beyond, but especially in the region there. So if you look at even all the things that are going on and you look deeper, 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 the bottom line of all of that often is the protection of Israel. So I think the, in this context, um, the, the reactions that you see happening um, are against the enemy, and, uh, and it's very easy to whip up Islamic feeling against the, the Christian, the United States, and Christian Europe, and then to frame it in religious terms as the enemy. And, um, and that's what's also been uh, a part of the growth of um, Islamic fundamentalism, they've been able to justify the enemy in that sort of way. Of course, the, many people would say that it's wrong, it's absolutely wrong to talk about Islam in general and equate it with, with this, um, this either terrorism or fundamentalism, etc. Because um, there are many different other forms of expression of, of Islam in the world and often the biggest victims of all these fundamentalist groups are Muslims themselves. So the Pope even said uh, in the last day or two that we've got to be very careful not to equate Islam with terrorism. And we have to, in that sense, be careful not to see it as a religious war. Clearly they are, they are attacking Christian groups, there's no question about that. And they are framing them as the enemy. Um, and, uh, and one can't deny that. But uh, if you look at, at the bottom line of what the issues are, uh, religion is simply being abused and used negatively in the sort of context, which, which means, in fact, that we have to be very vigilant because it's so easy to be attacked because of our religion. Um, but we've got to look deeper. It's not just a question of people hating us and, uh, or hating another religion. We've got to look deeper at what are the ideologies that are fermenting this. And if we look even deeper at this, we can see that this ideology is coming from the so-called Wahhabism form of uh, understanding of Islam, which is a uh, one It was just a small sect, but now it, it was um, put into the hands of the Saudi Arabian royal family who, with the, the, all the, the resources they got from their sale of oil, they flooded the whole world with this Wahhabi ideology to the point where um, that understanding of Islam has become almost hegemonic now in the whole world. And you see it happening in Africa and in all parts of the, of the, of the world, in fact. So if we're serious about trying to address this, we've got to tackle the roots of it, which are in Saudi Arabia. And unfortunately, as you look at what's happening, uh, especially the, the United States and Europe, they pump in so much investment and support for Saudi Arabia, both the level of economic support and at the level of selling arms. I think Saudi Arabia is one of the biggest buyers of the arms of, of Europe and of North America. And... Uh, and no one seems to see a problem with that. But in the process, all of them are effectively propping up this regime in Saudi Arabia, which is 
sector be promoting the ideology that's giving rise to all this terrorism. So we've got to look at it um, in, the, in this deeper sense that um, it's not just a question of um, a religious war, but it's a question of even the so-called Christian allied countries, or those that were allied to them, propping it up through total indiscriminate sales of arms and, and economic investment. So we, we have to see it in this broader sense. So we've got to be very careful not to just reduce everything to a religious war, which is a very, it's a, it's a symptom, but it's not by any means a cause. And if we wanted to really deal with the problem, we've got to look at the causes. You've been listening to the second part of my conversation with Father Mike Deeb OP, the permanent delegate to the United Nations for the Dominican Order for Justice and Peace. And that brings me up to time. This has been your Wednesday's edition of Catholic View right here on Radio Veritas. Please note that I'll be on leave as of tomorrow, Thursday, the 18th of August, and we'll be back on Tuesday, the 30th of August. So until then, do enjoy the rest of the broadcast. Thank you so much for listening. Remember that Catholic View is a program produced and presented for Radio Veritas by Sheila Pirsch. Thank you once again. God bless you and ciao, ciao.